This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by White Castle. Franklin, we are joined later in this broadcast by my old friend Jamie Richardson at White Castle. But uh, when you have the privilege of being in the neighborhood of a White Castle, what is it you go for? Man, this breakfast toast sandwich. First off, the breakfast menu looks just phenomenal. There's a lot of waffle things on here, waffle sandwiches. And uh, I think Carson would immediately gravitate to the chicken waffle slider. But for me, the breakfast toast sandwich, man, that looks delicious. So I think that's my go-to. You know, Steve Jobs and Apple were, were, were famous for how they packed, not only the technology, but how they packaged it. This suitcase of Big Craves, a suitcase, castle pack of eight, castle pack of nine, this suitcase of like a dozen sliders could feed Carson for an entire lunch. The Crave case. Has a, has a carrying handle. It's impressive. It's impressive. And uh, yeah, that's, a, that's specifically the Chandler family item. The other thing, Joe, about the that I love about the White Castle burgers in particular is they're they're perfectly Midwestern cropped. The burger fits perfectly within the bun. There's no spillover. It's all clean and very tight and very put together, and it's it's a distinctive look from White Castle. I enjoy it. And on that note, let's do the show. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm gonna have to go supersize. We and we will make America great again. From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, this week saw our industry's first successful union election in the post-COVID era when a Tattersall distillery and cocktail bar location in Minneapolis overwhelmingly voted to organize. We'll take a look at the factors that contributed to this, the vulnerability of that particular market, and what operators need to pay attention to going forward. And we talk automation with Jamie Richardson, the Vice President of Government and Shareholder Relations for White Castle Systems Incorporated, and discuss his company's pending experiment leveraging robots in the back of the house. And we'll also have a conversation about how a possible Biden administration may have very different criteria for what responsible corporate engagement looks like than our current administration does and what that could mean for brands going forward. We'll have those stories and wrap it up with a legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my Align Public Strategies partner, Franklin Coley. And Franklin, top of the batting order this week, we saw some unionization activity, I think maybe the first kind of post-COVID, in the midst of COVID, unionization activity at a kind of distillery slash, I don't know if it qualifies as a restaurant, but a open-air public, not a brew pub, but the distillery version of a brew pub. It looks like they were successfully unionized this week, Franklin. What happened? Yeah, the first, as far as we're aware, the, the first successful unionization effort at a restaurant, right? So we had the first big unionization campaign at Burgerville, you know, earlier this year, in the last year. But since we've been in this COVID-19 environment, there really hasn't been any actual election petitions filed that I'm aware of in the restaurant industry, and certainly none that have uh, where the union has won. So there's a couple things to look at here. One, it's a case study of how to run a unionization effort in the era of COVID-19, what messages resonate with workers some of the concerns and considerations that workers have in this environment, and also just kind of the the tactical approach in terms of the use of outside groups. So it's a good case study to look at that, Joe. Also, you know, another reason to talk about it is if you have restaurants in and around this area, and particularly if you have a restaurant that's of a similar model 
you know, it's a brew pub or even a uh, sit-down dining but has a large bar component to it, you probably have workers that have come from uh, this distillery or friends with these. So you, you just need to be on, on guard a little bit and aware that there may be an uptick in organizing activity in and around this this area of Minneapolis. Yeah, so this is a, a local Unite Here chapter, Local 17. The, the business is called Tattersall. It's, uh, you know, they say it's the first craft distillery in Minnesota and nationwide to unionize. Some of the liquor companies obviously unionize, but this is a, you know, a consumer facing sort of, I think you, you said brew pub, kind of the, the, the spirits version of a brew pub. And I do think it's important, A, that, that part of the country, to your point, if you have operations in that part of the country, you better be on your, on your toes on this one. Um, but the second piece is, Franklin, there was, seems to be a lot of coordination in collaboration with Rock, with the Restaurant Opportunity Center and their Twin Cities chapter, and it seemed like it was a kind of a one-two combination uh, affecting this outcome. Do, do you see it that way? And can you can you opine on that? Yeah, there certainly is, was some level of coordination. I mean, at the, at the very minimum, Rock has been quoted in the press as showing solidarity with this this effort, and I suspect there's probably more in the ground coordination that's not immediately apparent. But Minneapolis has become this little island of intense kind of worker organizing and using non-traditional worker organizing models, the worker center model being the most prominent there, right? And and Rock is, of course, employs that model. But we've also had a lot of organizing really just across the board. So Target has had ongoing unionization efforts and organizing efforts focused at, at them. And oftentimes the unions are working in collaboration with prominent worker centers and some of the more prominent actually in the country that are recognized as, as kind of perfecting the model have been targeting Target. So this is a little hotbed right here in Minneapolis. And what then has often been done in Minneapolis is the uh, the layering over of these nonprofit outside groups. Would say finally, of course, you know Minneapolis has been in the news for for other reasons, right? And has been an epicenter of these larger social justice campaigns. And so there's a larger conversation happening in this community around social inequities. And so all that's kind of in the backdrop here. We didn't see a lot of that necessarily injected into this campaign, but you've got a lot more kind of worker empowerment, organizing in general in the community. And it's easy to imagine that that's also influencing part of these these efforts. I, I think you're spot on. I think you're totally spot on there that, that, you know, these aren't happening in a vacuum, right? These are all interlinked. It's all against the context of this larger, this, this social organizing that you see going on in all aspects uh, of the community and cities across the country. And so it would be, it would be folly to, to assume that this, this is happening in a vacuum. And so there's a lot of interconnectedness in, in terms of all this. And so that's why there's a kind of an increased need for, you know, restaurant owners and operators to kind of be aware and keep your ear low to the ground and understand what's happening and communicate and understand, you know, making sure that you are you're hearing your employees and trying to address their needs that can be addressed and so forth like that. So it's very critical time. Frankly, it would be it would be my guess that, you know, and I think you you alluded to it earlier that the the Minneapolis market, this isn't this is the the, the first feather in the cap, but it won't be the last and this is going to put a lot of a lot of gas in the tank. You would think so. One last set of points to make Joe on this is and I think you you summed everything up there well, like for employers if you have operations in Minneapolis, 
you need to be aware that there's this growing momentum in and around just geographically, you know, probably working out from concentric circles from here. But you know, if you're a national employer, you need to be looking at the model that they utilize, the tactical approach, but also the arguments they made to workers. And that's, that's the last set of points uh, I'd like to hit on. And um, this being the first real unionization effort in this sector during COVID-19, it appears that a lot of the workers that had been furloughed, right, and then some of them brought back, were worried about their jobs, you know. And so what happened at this particular distillery, they were shut down and they did like many have done, which was transition over to making hand sanitizer, which didn't require full staff. And so there were a lot of employees, I think, that even whether they were called back or not, they were concerned that they were going to be laid off and that was going to be it. And so they wanted, for lack of a better term, some leverage and, and, a, and a seat at the table. And they were also cited in some of the press reports concerns over safety, which, you know, we've, we've seen this elsewhere related to COVID-19. So all these swirling issues that we've talked about in the, in the backdrop, um, these employees called a meeting with the owners and essentially put forward demands and asked that they recognize the union. The, the owners refused to do that. That was late June. That kicked us into the unionization process, and now they have a union. So the last takeaway, Joe, I think I'd say here is the message, that this message, and we've been talking about on this podcast now for months, is going to have resonance with some workers, the right to return in particular, which, you know, San Francisco passed legislation in that. Phoenix was considering it. We're going to see more jurisdictions, I suspect, pick that up, but that's a legitimate concern of a lot of workers. And whether it comes at us through legislation or not, and then union organizers use that fear and concern with workers, it's something that uh, employers are going to be dealing with probably in one shape or another um, here in the near term, along with these other COVID-19 issues. So a few weeks ago, we discussed on the podcast how companies are beginning the process of leveraging technology and experimenting with automation. And we mentioned that what our friends at White Castle were doing with regard to robots, specifically partnering with a company called Miso Robotics and developing a potential new crew member named Flippy. So as luck would have it, we have the good fortune to be joined on the podcast by a longtime friend, Jamie Richardson, who is White Castle's Vice President of Government and Shareholder Relations, and equally as important, a longtime industry leader on so many important public policy issues facing us. And not only that, Jamie is one of the few folks that's been around long enough that he knew me when I had hair. That's how far back we go, Jamie. So thanks for joining us. <laughs> it's great to be with you, Joe. So Jamie, before we get started, I just want to ask how the company is doing, especially with regard to navigating the pandemic and the impacts not only on your restaurants, but you know, more importantly, on your team members. How are you all and your team at HQ in Columbus managing through this? You know, here in White Castle Land, I think we're born, natural born optimists. I think that's part of being in the food business and, and the restaurant industry especially. And so it's been a tough time all the way around. And so when we see our colleagues and friends and, and know what they're going through and know what our team members are encountering, you know, and it, it's the stuff that, you know, we've always kind of leaned towards in terms of listening to what our team members tell us, you know, 10,000 people strong and more than one in four have been with White Castle for 10 years or more, which is really amazing. But we know the stress that's there at home and, and with kids home from school and now kids uh, hopefully maybe being able to go back to school or learn at home or whatever the situation may be. But through it all, I think we've stayed focused on the vision piece, which is feeding the souls of Craver generations everywhere. And so a lot of our lean has been towards making sure we're doing everything we can to safeguard every job we have. And so far, we've weathered the storm. I'd say that sales have stabilized. We're fortunate as a family-owned business because we have 
a restaurant division that's been around since 1921. But for the last 33 years, we've had a consumer packaged goods business. So we also sell into the grocery channel. So there's been some balance in the universe there. And as um, shopping behaviors have shifted and changed, uh, we've been in lockstep with that and been there. Uh, so anyone can have a slider anytime they want it. So um, that's at the drive-thrus or uh, from your freezer at 2 in the morning. we got you covered. But thanks for asking. We're hanging in there and uh, doing the best we can. Well, good. That's good to hear. I, I, I do not have in my neck of the woods down here in Orlando, Florida, uh, access to White Castle, but I do in my grocer's freezer. So we can have White Castle, as you say, anytime here. So I uh, appreciate that. So, Jamie, let's get into it. So talk to me about the company's thinking with regard to automation. Why are you experimenting and thinking about going down this road and potentially kind of trying out some of the new technologies that are available, uh, especially back of the house? I think for us, Joe, what it comes down to is, gosh, we've been around for literally 99 years, so we hit the big 100 next year. And along the way, every time we've been able to invest in technology, it's empowered our people and made it easier for us to take better care of our customers. And, you know, most recently, we made a big investment with Coca-Cola and the Freestyle Machine. And that Freestyle Machine has just been amazing in terms of more choices for, for customers. And candidly, it's integrated into the operation right away. So... I think in the age we live in, we know that art and science goes into every single day that you run a restaurant, especially when you're behind the counter. And so um, as we thought about it, being able to invest in new technology with our friends at Miso Robotics and Flippy uh, is going to be our our new hire coming soon to a castle in in our greater Chicago region. And and the focus that Flippy is going to have is running the fryer. 24 hours a day. And so for us, that's not about replacing people. It's about empowering the teams to do more of the art side of that behind-the-counter job, which is looking out and looking ahead to see where's that delivery driver coming in and um, how do we get that right order to that person on time and what's going on at the drive through right now and how do we move that line a little bit faster. So um, for us, it's just a, an investment we're excited about and we think it's the right time. So, you know, you, know, you never learn until you're willing to try. And in, at the castle, we've always been willing to try. So we'll see where it takes us. Yeah, you know, uh, Jamie, you say that and it reminds me of conversations I've had with folks in the retail, the traditional retail space that have leveraged technology and, you know, is assumed that it was about personnel or, you know, cutting staff. And it really wasn't. It was about repositioning staff. And it was taking somebody off a mundane task and putting them in front of customers and customer service and going across that aisle. Uh, and it sounds like that's exactly what, what you want to do. You want to free up people to do some of those other pieces of the operation that, that need that human touch, correct? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, we our hope is that we have a heart for hospitality. You know, we've been at it a while. And of our top 450 uh, restaurant operations leaders, 442 started behind the counter and an hourly job at White Castle. You know, that's a team that really knows each other, right, and gets the chemistry side of it. And that chemistry really does involve being able to problem solve on the fly, being able to deploy and be in the right places at the right times. And having a dedicated resource like Flippy, we think is going to free us up to do even more of that and hopefully do an even better job for our customers. So do you foresee, I mean, in terms of, you know, obviously you're, you haven't even really implemented your test yet, but, you know, there there will be some folks that will, you know, maybe in the press attack you, try to, try to automate, or uh, maybe even some employee relations, you know, issues where somebody might think they're about to be replaced or so forth. How are you working with your, you know, the management team side to prepare for that? I think the big thing is just if you're in a family-owned business, whether it's 10 people or 10,000 people, you treat everyone like family, and that means you share things in real time. So 
uh, no surprises. So we were able to share at our leadership conference. Gosh, it seems like it was seven years ago because it was in the, <laughs> it was in the day and age when <laughs> when you could still gather. But we had a, a leadership conference for all of our general managers and district supervisors, and and, and shared all the news about Flippy then. You know, five months ahead of making any other announcements or sharing the news with the larger world. And I think what we find is that if we do that, we're smarter and better, too, because those are the teams that are going to bring everything to life. And they also ask great questions. And so for us, it's about transparency equaling trust. And, you know, we, we do take a longer view. We're, we're privately held. We're not publicly traded. So we're pretty purposeful about things, and if it's something we're doing, it's not about the headline. It's about trying something new and getting the learning from it. So, you know, I, I think you always want to keep an ear to the ground because things change uh, sometimes, too, in the midst of a project. But that's where I think if you ask good questions, listen to the answers, and then use that as your guide for your actions, it puts you in the right place, hopefully. So, Jamie, will, will um, consumers, will your customers coming in to, to satisfy their crave, will they be able to have line of sight and be able to see Flippy back there doing, doing the, the, the fry station? Yeah, you know, I think, yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've got a uniform shirt for Flippy. We haven't quite figured out how to fit it yet, but, uh, and, and a hat, but, uh, you know, that's definitely something that there could be some showmanship to that and, and part of the fun, but our, our focus really is how does that line work? How does Flippy have the right access to the fryers? Um, which is going to be the area of focus and how does that all come together? But yeah, absolutely. Our, our thought is transparency with customers too. So we want them to be able to see what's going on uh, back behind the counter and they'll have a good shot at Flippy uh, as Flippy does what Flippy does. That's fantastic. I hadn't thought about a hat and a uniform, man. That's, that's, that's classic. That's classic. So, so Jamie, let me, let me pivot a little bit. Obviously we're, you know, public policy slash politics, you know, podcasts and so forth. Let, let me talk a little bit about on the political side. Do you, everybody, even, even a company as well regarded as yours, you know, there's always going to be pockets of, you know, naysayers, detractors, however you want to say it. And, Every time there's, not every time, but often when the automation conversation comes up, there's this backlash about, you know, from the labor community around replacing people and, you know, keeping wages and benefits down and blah, blah, blah. You know, I touched on a little earlier, but, are, you know, do you, do you force, especially in an urban market like Chicago and a big kind of labor friendly town like Chicago, do you, do you foresee those conversations coming your way? Uh, you know, you always got to be prepared. And I think that the best option there is just share what's going on. And, and, you know, for us, we've been completely dedicated to maintaining employment and, and creating more jobs, not uh, replacing jobs. And I guess, you know, one benefit we have is 99 years worth of history. And I can tell you that every time, you know, when we added the cash registers, that didn't that didn't hurt employment, made the job easier and better. You know, it made it a, a more appealing place to work. So when, you know, we added the freestyle machines, well, that means it's a little bit easier and you don't need as many people maybe working the fountain machine, but you've got people able to do other things. So um, when we put new grills in, same kind of thing. So I, I think every wave of technology for us has demonstrated that it's about a better running operation. And that's more uh, encouraging for the people who are there day in and day out because it makes their jobs a lot more fun. And uh, so we, we see it as a chance to empower the teams. And I, I hear you on that. I think that anytime those conversations come up, a lot of times those assertions aren't necessarily fact-based. And I think our hope would be, well, let's share the facts and show what's really happening on the ground. And uh, obviously, it's not the outcome that's going to happen. We, we know that because um, we know 
where our focus is. So, Jamie, I, I, I think you're spot on right about that. You know, there, there'll be somebody will raise that flag, but as long as you're, as you say, transparent and, and open, it, it's a conversation I think is easily diffused. Jamie, uh, sticking on kind of the policy political side, you know, uh, as we tape this in a, a little under 70 days, um, we have this little shindig in early November called the election. And uh, I know you are about as politically connected, ear to low to the ground, whatever you know, metaphor you want to lo- use, you know, and you, you know what's going on in Ohio, you've been there all your life. What do you, what did you see any surprises in Ohio? Will, will the president win Ohio again? What do you, what do you rate Trump's chances of winning, of repeating a win in Ohio? Uh, that's a great question. It is so hard to say. And the reason it's so hard to say is because it, it's an overused cliche, but here we are in, in living in circumstances that none of us um, have really ever encountered before. And so it's really hard to know the full effect of that. I can tell you this, that people are engaged and that the issues that are going to matter most to people, I think, when they do vote, are going to be the issues that impact them right at home. So I think the economic issues are going to matter, but also what's the the lens for the future look like? And to the extent, you know, they they feel more secure and safer, you know, I think that's going to have an influence on how people vote, and I think it's going to impact turnout quite a bit. So, you know, as you know, uh, Ohio is often hard to predict. I, I know that the governor here has tremendous support. He and the lieutenant governor have been a very visible, uh, engaged team, and and on the edges, they're they're getting criticism, but any leader in any position does. And so, I, I think there's going to be a look to who's the most engaged and who's mostly likely to lead us to a better place, and that that's going to shape a, a lot of what happens in Ohio, closer to home. Well, for for a non-politician, that was the most political answer I've ever heard. That was fantastic, Jamie. Now, just <laughs> just pulling your leg. So, so Jamie, I know your your legislature is you know, the Republicans have fairly robust margins up there. I don't see any reason why that that doesn't maintain after the elections. Do you? No, I mean keep in mind that there's a once a century pandemic we're dealing with. There's a once a century or so scandal that's happened in Ohio with our uh, Speaker of the House being removed from office. Uh, and some pretty serious charges. So the Republican speakers has been removed. And but at the end of the day, I think it still comes down to neighborhoods and that people aren't going to hold that against uh, the Republican legislator if he or she had nothing to do with any of it, you know. So I think it's scandalous. I think it, you know, it's a kick in the gut to uh, people, citizens of the state and people from both parties to think that someone could potentially, and obviously these are just allegations, nothing's been proven, but just the nature of the allegations is so startling that it gives you pause. So I think here's my hope, and I hope this doesn't sound too cliche. I hope the young people don't get discouraged. I hope that they continue to stay engaged and understand that good government matters, that you really have to be responsible citizens and, and go out and vote and be involved. And uh, whoever you're voting for, know why and understand what that means and that it's not about power other than it's about the stewardship that's given when you have that responsibility. So so I think Ohio's still reeling from that in the midst of everything else. The, the Republicans have uh, strong advantages in the, in the Senate and the House, and I don't, I don't see that necessarily changing. I, I don't as well. And, you know, you, you mentioned your governor. Your governor has gotten high marks across the country for kind of how he's responsible way he has approached um, th- this pandemic. And, um, you know, you're, for, for a big, big state with a lot of big cities, your numbers have been remarkably, how should I say this, out of the limelight. You know, you've, you've, you guys have done well. And, um, you know, I know that the Ohio Restaurant Association, you've been a long time active 
participant in that. It's been fun to watch them under you know the, the current leadership kind of emerge as a, as a significant political player in Columbus. And I know they've been very, very involved with the governor's office on all these kind of COVID-related aspects, whether it's reopening and dining rooms and so forth. And I think John Barker and his team at, at Ohio Restaurant Association have done a really, really nice job during this whole this whole time. Yeah, I would echo that sentiment. I mean, they've been engaged. They've done everything a leader is supposed to do um, in terms of really you know, leaning in, listening, and candidly, their engagement with Governor DeWine and Lieutenant Governor Houston has been in lockstep. I mean, they have really been good partners. And, and, and the fact that the governor and lieutenant governor, I know they're doing this with other industries too, they have absolutely spent time dialing in, listening, you know, hearing concerns, expressing and sharing, hey, this is the situation we're in, here's what we might need to do next. And they've communicated clearly along the way, which even if you don't agree with the exact decision, you have to appreciate that the process is transparent and involved, you know, that it really is a lot of outreach to the restaurant community. And we're all eager to be past this and on to what's next. But I would compliment the leadership in the state for the good job they've done so far. I would as well. We never talk about COVID in past tense around here, you know, because it feels like it should be, but it's not, you know, it's taking it one day at a time. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Well, um, Jamie, uh, I do appreciate you taking the time and, and kind of opening the, up in the window a little bit and telling us what you're doing with regard to automation. I do appreciate the uh, free civics lesson on the landscape in Ohio. Appreciate our collaboration for a long, long time in this industry. And uh, we will continue to, as we say at White Castle World, buy them by the sack, correct? That is absolutely right. And I've got good news to share with you, friend. You mentioned Orlando. Well, stay tuned because a castle is coming your way. Sometime probably in the first four or five months of 2021, we will have a castle that you can call your own. Well, we, we may have to do a, a live recording of Working Lunch from the White Castle in Orlando when, when that opens up, pal. We're going to invite you to work uh, a shift for National Hamburger Month. We won't put you beside Flippy. We'll give you your own, your own workstation, and uh, we'll, we'll make it matter. I, I look forward to that, my friend. You're the best. I appreciate you. Great, Mom. See you at the drive-thru. So, Franklin, we've seen a lot written in the last couple of weeks, and, and you alluded offline that you know it was a lot of it was in the wake of the Democratic National Convention, that corporations may be held to a different kind of uh, standard in a potential Biden administration. They have been in a Trump administration. Trump has taken his shots at different companies in the Twitter wars. This this week's ADD subject of the moment was Goodyear tires, blah, blah, blah. But I think Biden has alluded to pretty, pretty straightforward that there'll be a higher standard for corporate behavior in a Biden administration. Will you illuminate us a little bit on how you think that looks? Yeah, and that's probably an underestimate of the year there, sort of, uh, or understatement of the year that we'll have a different standard. It'll be wildly different. President Trump is a little bit all over the board. You know, he's going after TikTok. Yesterday, the pharmaceutical industry before that, Goodyear Tires. And we've seen, we talked in the opening days of the Trump administration, you know, about getting called out the president by the president and what would that do to brands? Would it have an impact or not? And I think we decided that most of the impact would be in the stock value. And in those initial months, when brands got called out, there would be kind of initial dip and then it would bounce right back. And I don't even know if it registers anymore. So, you know, getting called out by President Trump doesn't necessarily mean there's a lot of follow through. Now, in the example of like a TikTok, for instance, there's clearly going to be a lot of 
follow through. But I think in a Biden administration, I suspect that Biden or his cabinet secretaries, when they call out a company, there will be a truckload of preparation before, during, and follow up after, and expectations set. And, you know, how do I say this? It won't be as kind of passing in terms of the the bump on a company. And to say the expectations will be different is wildly understand. I mean, the business roundtable and others that have made these statements that we have to be about more than making profits, no one other than themselves, you know, and some left of center blogs have really held them to account on that commitment. But I suspect a Biden administration will be holding them to account on that commitment, drilling down and what exactly that looks like, and then building out potentially federal regulations around it. So it's going to be, uh, I suspect, uh, a new day under a Biden administration. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, the, the, the Levi Strauss example is a great one in terms of, you know, having a core activism on a core issue. In their case, it was gun violence. You know, I, I think is just because an administration changes doesn't mean a lot of these protests we're seeing in the cities goes away, uh, you know, anytime soon. As far as I, you know, incidents still happen that will spur, the, that will spur those, those protests. And, you know, I think a Biden administration is going to be calling on companies to really come out and take a different tact. And they're going to hold them accountable. To your point, it won't be a, an ADD Twitter snit of the, of the day or a two-day Twitter fest or whatever it is. It's going to be a long, sustained, strategic drumbeat on these companies to move them. And I, I think it would behoove a lot of corporate leaders to, to really think through if there is a Biden administration and if there, if there is a Secretary of Labor, Elizabeth Warren, whoever it might be, things are going to look a lot different um, in a lot of ways, not, not just the obvious ways, but in terms of the, the bar being raised for corporate activity. And I'm not, again... You know, on this particular issue, I'm not condoning one thing or another. I'm not saying they should be or shouldn't be. I'm just saying what is, and that's what's coming. And so people got to figure out how to how to operate in that new world order. And I and I think too, if the Biden administration is the would be Biden administration is smart about this, they'll do what we saw earlier in the Obama, in my opinion, earlier in the Obama administration, but not in the back half of the Obama administration, which was. You know, the Obama administration went out, recruited a couple companies, pulled them into their initiatives or campaigns, and started putting on an island, you know, the rest of the industry or, or other companies. I think they did less of that in, in his second term, particularly the last two years of the second term. But if you think back to, like, the obesity issue, which obviously impacts the restaurant sector, it was Michelle Obama's big, big initiative. Michelle Obama peeled off a number of restaurant companies that were on stage with her promoting, and really, really change corporate behavior, and, and not necessarily through regulation, but just through the power of the, the bully pulpit. And I think the I think the Biden administration would be smart to look as much or more at that approach than the regulatory approach. One last thing, Joe, before we, we wrap up this segment, I would flag for everyone, in the post-DNC coverage, there, is, there was one article that jumped out about what a Biden administration may look like in some of the considerations. And as a Politico article, definitely should go look it up. It's called Biden is already forming a government. Here's what his cabinet could look like. And they go through all the rings of a potential Biden administration. And there's a bunch of names in here that totally made sense to me, but I wouldn't have thought about them off the top of my head. And it gives you a sense of what 
what the Biden administration should could look like. Name number one, Joe. First word and the second word in this long article is Sherrod Brown. So just take that home with you. But uh, definitely worth a read. Yeah, and my sense is, you know, and I'm, you know, again, we're getting a cart before the horse here, you know, long before an election, but hypothetical punditry is what we do, right, Franklin? But, um, you know, if there is a Biden administration, my sense would be just, you know, kind of where that guy's head's been over the last 30 or 40 years, almost 50 years of public service and what he's been interested in. My sense is he's going to let the Elizabeth Warrens and the Sherrod Browns of the world and whomever, you know, they will not be White House interns like they are in this administration. They're going to be, have freedom to go do their thing because he's going to go focus on foreign things. He's going to go go back and and resurrect our relationships with NATO and World Health Organization and treaties and our normal... You know, I suspect most of Joe Biden's time will be in that space. And he will let... He will... What do you call it? Delegate. He will delegate a lot of that policy stuff to other people he feels competent. Just my, my guess. I agree 100% with the only footnote. I do think that he will try to get a couple big legislative packages pushed through and and kind of in the mold of like uh, an LBJ. And he has that background like an LBJ. Probably since LBJ, no one has as much of a credential background in working the legislative process. So I do think there will be, first off, we're probably going to need it, right? We're going to need some big legislative packages post, you know, COVID-19 or we're in that recovery revival phase, hopefully. And I think he'll want to push some big ones through and like healthcare and some other things. So, you know, we'll see if he runs into the same buzzsaw that everyone continues to run into this kind of partisanship on the Hill or if he can break through. But I think he's uniquely positioned to do that. So anyway, as you said, we've got a lot of, a lot of game left to play and uh, the Republicans have tried to, uh, and I think done a pretty decent job, uh, regain some, some of the conversation this week with, with the convention. So a lot of, a lot of votes to still be counted, as they say, I guess. It's time for the Legislative Scorecard, where we go around the country and update you on the latest regulatory and legislative developments. And as always, we start with COVID-19-related legislation. Franklin, there seems to be some movement out there on the, in the world of restaurant surcharges. Yeah, and really, this is a group of a number of restaurants in uh, Massachusetts and around the Boston area that have been putting fees on customer bills, like a PPE fee or a safe and sustainable fee. And basically, these are fees from ranging from 3 to 5% that are related to additional cost the restaurant is incurring related to COVID-19. So this, this is, you know, intended to go towards hand sanitizer, PPE, you know, additional cleaning supplies, etc. We have seen this tactic employed before by restaurants, particularly around ACA and healthcare, where there was a healthcare fee. Sometimes we'll see if there's a minimum wage increase or a paid leave mandate, they will restaurants will line item that on the receipt. There's a couple of things to be careful for here, and it's going to depend jurisdiction by jurisdiction, depending on, you know, state statutes related to this. But you got to be careful that you're not tripping across a deceptive advertising. You know, if you do not have this posted and, you know, a certain font in your menu, and then you add it on at the end, you could be in trouble. And that has happened in many jurisdictions. And the other thing, too, is, you know, sometimes these fees get put on and then the taxes aren't applied. And so that has become an issue for some operators. So if you're going to go this route, you know, you just need to be very 
very certain that you're you're not going to be tripping across any of these landmines, and a lot of restaurateurs have in the past. That, just to your point, it seems like every time someone gets gung ho about these surcharges, they always get backlash and seem to have to walk them back. You know, it seems like a good idea at the time, and then you, you look back, and very few of them have much staying power because of the backlash. But uh, so, but to your point, your counsel is is wise on on being smart about that. Franklin, also some some movement this week uh, in the liability space. We have another state kind of jumping on board. Yeah, we reported last week that the governor was calling a special session to address two very narrow issues, one of which was liability. He did that, and the legislature very quickly approved liability, a liability shield for businesses, also for um, schools, hospitals, some other things. This this moved and this happened very quickly. It was largely in a party line vote. Some Republicans, I think in the upper chamber, uh, broke with the party and voted against it. Democrats were pretty firm in opposition to the attorney general for for his part put out kind of the office put out an analysis and found that the liability shield had some issues that it wasn't clear enough in the way it was setting up this liability shield and it may actually kind of conflict with some existing statutes so anyway we'll see how that all kind of plays out in the courts. The governor is expected to sign this thing into law. So it's going to provide a level of protection that didn't exist before for businesses that are demonstrating that they're making good faith efforts to uh, to comply. And Franklin, pivoting the wages, we reported last week on Aurora, Colorado, a, a little bit of activity, uh, follow-up activity this week. Yes, $20 an hour minimum wage was under consideration. It failed in a committee by a 2-1 vote. The way that apparently the Aurora City Council works is there's going to still be an opportunity to bring it directly to the floor, and it's expected that that's going to happen. Now, the mayor opposes this $20 an hour mandate, but a number of the city council members are supporting it. So honestly, it's a little bit unclear where this thing's going to shake out. One little side note, in at least one article, it was reported that the Aurora Chamber of Commerce, while opposing a $20 an hour minimum wage, actually supports a local minimum wage increase. Now, it could have been misreported, but that would indicate to me that there's probably probably an appetite for some sort of wage increase, maybe just not up to $20 an hour. So, Joe, a bit of a ways to go here, and we'll have some legislative maneuvering in the city council, and uh, we're just going to have to keep our eyes peeled to Aurora to see what pops out of the process. Frank, let's stay in Colorado. Uh, some news this week on their paid leave ballot initiative. Yeah, so this, this thing is going to the ballot. It will provide 12 weeks of paid leave, and this is going to be split. The cost is going to be split between the employer and the employee. 0.5% of employees' wages will go into the fund, and employers will will cover the rest. They can cover more if they choose to, so you can set that up as a benefit, you know, 100% of your paid leave covered. If you have an existing plan, you know, a private plan, then you can opt out. And then small, small businesses, defined as businesses with 10 or fewer employees, would not be required to pay fees. So the way the ballot language is written, this was launched in 2023. This may be the thing that finally gets Colorado kind of over to the finish line on this on this issue. They have been debating it and discussing it now for 
it seems like a millennia, but at least three years, three sessions. So voters will have their shot this coming November. Yeah, two things stick out to me on the Colorado thing. First of all, you know, in a relatively short period of time, they collected not quite twice, but almost twice the necessary signatures just to be just to be sure. They did it in pretty short order. Uh, so that was interesting to me. And the second piece is, you know, it's a it's a shared sacrifice model in the sense that, you know, employees are kicking in, employers are kicking in, gaps are filled by the state. Employers, if they want to, you know, for their own competitive advantage, you know, can pay in more, blah, blah, blah. But I that shared sacrifice model tends to be one that at a legislative level seems like it has an easier time whether the voters will want to participate in something they pay for remains to be seen. So it's interesting for me on a lot of on a lot of fronts. Franklin, we reported, you know, Virginia has been had an active kind of special session in regard to COVID. Uh, we reported on last week that a, a paid leave bill did fail miserably in, in committee in the state Senate. Uh, but the House was active this week as well. Yeah. And we're in the middle of we're in the midst of the sausage making here. So it's, it's unclear what exactly is going to pop out of the process. But yeah, we have another paid leave bill and it was two weeks of paid quarantine leave for workers who test positive. That's, that's the trigger in this bill. And it would also extend paid time off for employees who need to get tested or self-quarantine after <clears throat> potential exposure. So we'll just have to see how this thing kind of works through uh, works through the process, yeah. And staying in Virginia, um, similar action. There was some, some activity this week on workers' comp. Yeah, and we've seen this. So this is kind of an emerging issue, if you will. You know, we saw this in Illinois. It's it's one to keep an keep an eye towards whether or not these worker these states go down the path of rewriting some of these worker comp policies. And oftentimes, their initial focus is really going to be on kind of the first responders and hospital workers, and not necessarily restaurant and retail. But Virginia is opening this up. They're working on it now. And it's something that uh, operators should be paying attention to because it could potentially change the way that we calculate and, and pay for workers' comp. Franklin, switching to delivery, a lot going on in this space this week. Uh, we reported last week that the commission cap, fee cap in Los Angeles uh, was expiring at the end of the month. Uh, we reported last week that the city council was likely to take action uh, on that, and they did. And they, they extended it for quite a long period of time. So, so, Joe, the city voted this week to basically extend that provision. So we're talking 15% cap on fees and then and 5% on additional fees. And the way this is going to work is it's going to be a 90-day extension after restaurants can resume 100% dining capacity without restrictions. So it basically ensures that this thing, the, the fee cap, continues through the pandemic. And then a little while afterwards, the thought being, of course, that restaurants will at that point be able to gear back up to full capacity. And Franklin, some interesting uh, news this week out of Amazon with regard to, you know, holding holding platforms liable. They, they kind of came out in support of a bill targeted at them, correct? Yeah, and we reported on this same topic two or three weeks ago. There was a court decision that held Amazon as the first of its kind in, a, in the country, held Amazon liable for I think it was a laptop battery that exploded and burned a customer. And typically, the seller would have been held liable and may still be held liable. But that individual had sued and tried to hold Amazon liable as well. And uh, the court found that Amazon was liable. So that totally upends the whole kind of Amazon business model. 
Meanwhile, there was a bill working its way through the California legislature, basically directly targeting Amazon on the same issue, making Amazon liable for sales on its platform. Whereas before it always claimed, you know, look, we're just connecting customers with sellers and taking a fee. You know, that's between the customer and the seller. Reading the bill sponsor's reaction in quotes, you basically couldn't believe it. You know, <laughs> I think he's been railing on Amazon for for years, and all of a sudden Amazon came out in support of his bill. And the reason Amazon came out in support of his bill is he wrote, rewrote his bill to capture basically all online retail platforms. So all the other online retail platforms are in violent opposition to this bill, but now Amazon is supporting it. And uh, as we mentioned earlier, this is a first-in-the-nation thing. So this this would attach to all online retailers some level of liability or responsibility for transactions on their platform, and it basically completely changed the the online retail kind of landscape pretty quickly. Now, this thing thing has a ways to go through the legislative process in California, but it probably had little chance of passage before, and with Amazon's support, it's probably going to get to momentum now, so it's something we're going to continue watching. And something, speaking of continuing to watch, we have been uh, obsessed with this Lyft Uber situation in California because the tentacles, the ramifications are so extensive in terms of business model, franchise business model, all that body of law. Part of the, the pushback campaign by, we talked about Uber and Lyft and with regard to New York City in particular, but you know, overall it's kind of engaging their, engaging their customers in this, in, this, in this conversation. They commissioned a poll uh, to back up their legislative approach, if you will, talking about the broad public support. Can you uh, add some, some color to that? Yeah, this is pretty standard blocking and tackling of a public affairs campaign. They, they found that 71% of independent contractors uh, preferred the freedom of being an independent contractor. You know, like we've seen waiters and waitresses get organized and mobilized around the tip wage conversation. Here we've got you know, the drivers or freelancers or independent contractors more broadly being organized to voice their support for uh, the independent contractor model. You know, I don't know how persuasive this will be, but the uh, the fight in uh, California continues. The stakes are high and we'll continue keeping you up to date and, and every twist and turn. And one final, one final item with regard to alcohol delivery. We reported in the past that the uh, the state of Georgia uh, has passed legislation approving to-go cocktails and alcohol delivery, uh, and it all, but, it all, but it also empowered municipalities to kind of do their own thing if they ch- so chose. Uh, and it looks like Atlanta, the city of Atlanta, is taking the governor up on that offer. Yeah, it's unclear exactly where this is going to land, but it's looking like you know wine stores and package stores are going to be able to deliver all types of alcohol for for home delivery. So. You know, that's, that's a big a big deal. I mean, Florida does some delivery, but a lot of the other, you know, red state, you know, the traditional southeast states that always had the last to get rid of a lot of the blue laws do not allow for this, this type of stuff. So for a big city like Atlanta to go this route, I think, is, is notable. Yeah, it's, we've, been, we've had a few uh, numerous alcohol-related items uh, in, in the, the scorecard each week, and it was kind of a slow week. I, I know it's the end of the, end of the summer and Labor Day and people back to school and so forth and the convention, so a lot of city councils and le- state legislatures have not been meeting. But uh, So a pretty thin scorecard, still a lot going on, and we'll have more for you next week. Well, another week, another pod. 
Franklin, I thought the uh, it, was, it was nice catching up with Jamie Richardson. I think the, the couple of key uh, points he made, you know, the, the most important one is that City of Orlando is getting a White Castle early next year, and we're going to have the privilege of kind of getting behind the counter and working at White Castle for a day. Are you looking forward to that? I mean, absolutely, 100%. Yeah. Did, did you talk to him about Carson working behind the counter? We did not mention Carson working behind the counter because that would clean out sales for the opening period. That would not be good for clean out inventory. That would not be yeah, good I mean, for White Castle. I'm pretty, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure serve safe and the food handler courses prevent stuffing your face while you're back there. And Carson will need to review that section if he uh, if he's going to join us. But uh, yeah, no, I'm I'm looking forward to it. You know, nothing like getting getting the hands dirty, so to speak. Well, speaking of things that uh, you look forward to, you had a full week of the Republican National Convention. What is your, uh, it's over as we tape this podcast. What is your takeaway? One, one takeaway? I get one takeaway? You can have as many takeaways as you want. Yeah. I don't know. The Trump Variety Hour. It was a historic convention. Let's put it that way. It was one that will, will definitely go down in history. It was unlike any convention that's ever been seen before. As a delegate to the last convention, not the last convention, the convention before last, I can tell you that it was, it was a different deal. It was a very different deal. Objectively, just putting aside all the convention stuff, the fireworks show, which I don't know when they shut down D.C. for fireworks shows other than July 4th, probably never, but they did for the convention. Objectively, the fireworks show was probably the best fireworks show I've ever seen. I mean, they spelled out Trump 2020 with fireworks. They had stars. It was the most unbelievable. I have been at the White House for July 4th fireworks shows before, and they didn't hold a candle of fireworks to this. I mean, it was it was something else. It's worth watching on YouTube if you if you didn't see it. It's it's very impressive overall the monuments to see the the fireworks going off. You know, put, putting aside the politics. So that's all I'm going to say uh, here on the record, Joseph, is uh, it was a historic convention. That was uh, as po- either politically correct or uh, uh, waffling as one could possibly be, speaking of waffles in White Castle. Um, on that note, uh, we, will, we will wrap up this podcast for the week. Uh, our thoughts are going out to our, our friends and neighbors in Texas and Louisiana that have suffered from... Uh, The hurricane, we were thinking of you, and uh, we'll be talking to you all next week.